I still recall from the books I read All the great empires built in my head But every year I raise one more I poured it out and a wardrobe door But I, I'm still seeking thunder I'm still seeking thunder Hello and welcome to another woebegone episode of Seeking Tumnus, the podcast where we drink deeply of nostalgia and reread the books of our youth, or parents' youth, or their parents' youth apparently, and try to rediscover the magic that enchanted us in years gone by. On alternate episodes, we step forward a few centuries and read books aimed at today's young adults. My name is Laurie, and I'm joined by my fellow hosts, Keith I almost used my Kindle for kindling, (laughs) Ro. Hello. Rookie of the Year, Patrick Moon. (laughs) Hello, thank you. (laughs) And the wielder of most holy and terrible retribution, Bree. Hear ye, hear ye. This episode, Bree introduces us chaps to Little Women by Louisa May Alcott. Did we get Alcott up in it? Let's find out. But first, a warning. Was that a dig at me because I I got annoyed about your puns on Twitter? Uh, yes. <laughs> it's not just okay. my compulsion towards endless puns. <laughs> yeah, all right, fair enough. On this episode of Seeking Tumness, we'll be discussing Spoiled Little Women. So, hey! We're, we're spoilers about Little Women. <laughs> if you've not read the book and an unspoiled romp through the heady wiles of Americana sounds like your thing, then set this episode on the back burner so that you can indulge. Otherwise, make yourself prim and proper, but wear a nice dress, if you please. You look positively common. And join us as we thank the Lord for the blessings of fiction he has bestowed upon us. (laughs) Here's Bree with the first page to that effect. Chapter 1. Playing Pilgrims. Christmas won't be Christmas without any presents grumbled Joe, lying on the rug. So dreadful to be poor, sighed Meg, looking down at her old dress. I don't think it's fair for some girls to have plenty of pretty things and other girls nothing at all, added little Amy, with an injured sniff. We've got father and mother and each other, said Beth contentedly from her corner. The four young faces on which the firelight shone brightened at the cheerful words, but darkened again, as Joe said sadly. We haven't got father and shall not have him for a long time. She didn't say perhaps never. But each silently added it, thinking of father far away where the fighting was. Nobody spoke for a minute, then Meg said in an altered tone, You know the reason mother proposed not having any presents this Christmas was because it is going to be a hard winter for everyone. And she thinks we ought not to spend money for pleasure when our men are suffering so in the army. We can't do much, but we can make our little sacrifices and ought to do it gladly. But I'm afraid I don't. And Meg shook her head as she thought regretfully of all the pretty things she wanted. But I don't think the little we should spend would do any good. We've each got a dollar and the army wouldn't be much helped by our giving that. I agree not to expect anything from mother or you, but I do want to buy Undine and Sintran for myself. I've wanted it so long, said Joe, the bookworm. I plan to spend mine in new music, said Beth, with a little sigh which no one heard but the hearthbrush and kettle holder. I shall get a nice box of Faber's drawing pencils. I really need them, said Amy decidedly. 
Mother didn't say anything about our money and she won't wish us to give up everything. Let's each buy what we want and have a little fun. I'm sure we work hard enough to earn it, cried Jo, examining the heels of her shoes in a gentlemanly manner. Page 1.02 We don't need no civil war. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> That's our musical interlude for the evening. It's because he's off fighting in the Civil War. <laughs> I don't think I've ever heard that song. Uh, well, you haven't heard it like that. Mm. <laughs> is it? Is it the Civil War? I never quite grasped what grasped. time period we were in. Excuse me. I never grasped <laughs> what time period we were in here. Uh, I'd kind of put it in the early 90s, uh, not 90s, the early, early 1900s. <laughs> Joe grabbed some moose and spiked up her hair. No. Was that yeah. Whilst listening to Green yeah. Day. Thank you for enlightening me, Laurie. And thank you for page one, Bree. Thanks. What did you think, Keith? I've got four letters for you all. It's PTSD. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I wasn't enjoying it when I read it, but I was sort of hopeful that it would take an upturn like Anne of Green Gables did. <laughs> That's succinct. <laughs> <laughs> more, more so than I have known you to be <laughs> in the past. It, it gives me great worry. <laughs> I feel a sense of foreboding rising up. Well, that's exactly how I felt about page one. <laughs> I really had dread after those first few pages and certainly the first chapter and I only had this sort of small desperate hope that, like you did, Keith, that it might turn out to be like Anne of Green Gables where you'd come away loving it. Or it might be a bit like Greece where they all whip off their boring school uniforms or whatever it is and they'll be sort of <laughs> dressed in leather and causing ruckus around town and getting into cars with boys and all that kind of crazy Greece stuff. But sadly, no. The nunnery lived on for many chapters. Yet. <laughs> but in 1868, they might have just lifted their skirt and shown an ankle, right? Well, even that would have been something to look forward to. <laughs> You'd crawl across the Sahara for an ankle at this point, Larry. Uh, what about you, Pat? Yeah, I felt similarly, but maybe the hope was a little bit brighter for me. I'm a big fan of writers like Dickens, and this had that sort of vibe to it. I certainly can't fault the writing style. So it felt potentially like it could be up my alley. But having said that, the rotisserie of characters did not engage me immediately. But, yeah, I had I had some hope in my breast. Bree? <laughs> I'm similar to all of you, and especially for the entire first chapter, I was sort of, is this really what I'm making them read? Because it's been so long and I... And I have such fond memories of these characters and yet they're just prissy little so-and-sos and is this going to continue for the rest of the novel? And I do quite like an event to occur. I kept thinking, does the father come back in the first chapter for a time? Is there something that it happens? It really doesn't. So I did force myself on floating on those memories of times past. Mm. Why don't you give us a synopsis, Laurie, so everybody can have a bit of an idea of what actually does transpire <laughs> throughout this lengthy novel? Well, I'm not quite sure, but I'll give it a shot. <laughs> uh, four sisters, Meg, 16, Joe, 15, Beth, 13, and Amy, 12, live with their mother, whose uterus has clearly fallen out at that point. <laughs> <laughs> four children? <laughs> <Yeah>. Come on. <laughs> but father is off fighting in the Civil War, as duty dictates, though it's probably just as well because his kindness resulted in the loss of the family fortune and the women are living in genteel poverty. 
the book swirls around the girls and their adventures and misadventures and their never-ending quest to surmount their character flaws and become better people. Joe, for example, has a quick and long-simmering temper, and young Amy a snooty vanity that extends beyond their new station. The book is thin on a common thread, but rather seems to be a series of individual stories or occurrences that typically result in a moral lesson. One common element that develops over time, though, is the budding relationship with the young stud next door, <laughs> Laurie, <laughs> who befriends the girls and joins them on their adventures and education in morality together. I may have given the book short shrift there. Bree, would you like to mention any specific elements or side plots that happen? that I might have glossed over. I think the point to make is that we did only read volume one of two. Well, let's talk about why briefly, <laughs> apart from it being a slog, but it was actually really, really long. Well, it was released in two parts as well. So volume one, I don't know if you can call it a book in and of itself, but it was released a good year or two prior to volume two being released. So I believe that Louisa May Alcott, who was under pressure to release something very quickly and so she wrote half the book and then came back and revisited the characters so I don't know how much development she'd done on the storyline. Yeah, is that how it transpired because I know that they were definitely released a year apart but I couldn't sort of find any sources that quoted how they were written. I did read that she was under pressure from her publisher hmm. to put it out. Mm. She'd previously been writing short novels and short stories and things. Ah that makes sense mm. because it does seem to be a series of short stories. Mm. She also concluded the first part with uh, the classic sort of clickbait as well. The, if, <laughs> if this book gets 1,000 likes, I'll release another half. Well, I, I find that thoroughly objectionable. That was just terrible, wasn't it? It really was clickbait. <laughs> yeah, it was, pretty, it was kind of funny, actually. I really disliked the ending of Volume 1. Like, I really intensely disliked it. We'll swing around to it, yeah. I think. <laughs> Why don't you tell us then, Bree? Why you chose this book? Well, I remember it fondly. I remember that really strong sisterly bond that came through and I had a sister and we were close and I was reading it in the early 1990s so I would have been somewhere between 10 and 15 and there was a popular film that was released in 1994 about Little Women so it probably coincided at the same time and my sister's a couple of years younger so she would have been roughly 8 through 13-ish when I read it. It took you five years. <laughs> <laughs> Makes to get sense. Through, to get through Little Women, <laughs> Joe's Boys, Little Men, Good Wives, whatever the four books were that ended up being released, probably did. There's more. Yes. How good is that? Well, it's astounding. <laughs> it's certainly a fact. <laughs> So the movie was released in 1994 and it had people like Winona Ryder as Joe and Claire Danes as Beth and Susan Sarandon played the mother. So for somebody of that age, that's a really strong cast of excellent female actors who were playing these roles. You can't leave Kirsten off. Yeah, exactly. Oh, she played the little Amy at the time, but she was actually replaced halfway through the movie and an older actress played grown-up Amy from oh, volume really? two. Yeah. And Christian Bale was in it. Yes, he was Laurie. He was a stud. That That's one. a credit to you, Laurie. <laughs> no. <laughs> I guess this is also a coming-of-age book for girls who are becoming women, and it's arguably one of the very early ones in that genre. Up to 19, 1868, the majority of books that were available were sort of more boys' 
adventure type stories and for this one we've become sort of more used to it with the Hunger Games and the Ranger's Apprentice and those books that we've actually read and this one I remember as being more subtle in its approach and so I sort of thought it was appropriate and finally Laurie we have a Laurie we've got to read it (laughs) so I guess did it live up to my memory we'll find out none of you I'm sure enjoyed it but (laughs) tell me why Patrick all right I will endeavor to do that it was a problematic book for me. I don't, I don't hesitate to say I found it really, really, really hard to get through, to be completely frank, because it was so long. It was just page after page after page. And one of the same issues that arose with Anne of Green Gables for me popped up in this. And I, I think that's interesting, noting that you guys were sort of hoping that it would pan out to be of the same quality as Anne of Green Gables. But for me, it felt similar in the way that we were just exposed to all these little vignettes with the the moral lesson at the end. And it felt saccharine and didactic in a sort of patronising way. And in a very quaint, twee sort of sexist way as well to me these the reinforcement of these gender roles that just feel so jarring now and whilst i know that they are of their time it was it just felt so discordant with what i'm used to what i believe what i think and it made it a real struggle and the fact that the plot was so threadbare didn't do anything to alleviate the problem produced by that because it was nothing but these little moral lessons which I found vaguely objectionable in some instances. A number of them were completely sort of harmless. And then it sort of progressed for quite a ways before anything kicked into gear, before anything happened. But I should say that once it did happen, it was quite engaging and I enjoyed it. Things start to turn once the father who is away fighting in the war, is injured and the mother's called away. The the girls have to fend for themselves, essentially. And I found that that's where things become a little bit more interesting. There's actually some conflict. There's illness. Beth becomes quite ill and is on death's door. And I'm reading it thinking, finally, I feel a compulsion to turn the page and find out what happens because that was completely absent before. It was only the only thing that kept me going really was I'm not going to have any idea what the others are talking about if I don't get through this, <laughs> if I don't read the next page and the next page and the next page up to page, you know, we only read part one, but it was 300 and some pages just for the for first part of the book. So the plot did kick into gear a little bit, but still it, it didn't, particularly satisfy me in, in any great way, but it did become more compelling. But as I say, it was it was right at the back end of the book. The characterization was pretty good, I thought. The character of Joe in particular was really well rounded, really well fleshed out. She ran a little bit against the grain of that stereotypical sort of proper prim young woman. And that was really refreshing and I really liked it. It was a little bit of pushback against some of those mores, some of those values that rankle me so. So that was that was great. Laurie was a great character. And there was a real sense of familial love, affection, support throughout that was nice to see. And I probably would have enjoyed it if it had been just condensed right down, like right, 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 right down. It was too long. I think that's pretty much all that I 
have to say about it. Yeah, yeah, problematic with a lot of lows and a couple of highs. What about you, Keith? Okay, so I don't think I'm going to be as sympathetic as you were to the book. (laughs) (laughs) So well done for the tact that you served up there. It's been my experience that you can nearly always enjoy things if you make up your mind firmly that you will. Oh. <laughs> That's one of my favourite oh, quotes And uh, she's been the star of this show so far It's from Anne, from Anne of Green Gables And I channeled that once more for this reading What I learnt is the importance of the word nearly in this statement <laughs> You learnt that Anne's a filthy liar <laughs> well, no, She does say, can nearly always enjoy things If you make up your mind firmly that you will Try as I might on this reading I just couldn't enjoy Little Women Although, as Patrick said, it did become more interesting in the later stages, but I'd liken that to watching grass grow being more interesting than watching paint dry. (laughs) Interestingly, this is counted by Americans amongst their top 10 books, according to a 2014 Harris poll. That's pretty crazy considering that this book is almost 150 years old. When I had to read this book, it was really making me hate reading. (laughs) This is true. I'd see my Kindle lying around and rather than picking it up for a a couple of minutes of distracted reading, I'd tuck it further away out of sight <laughs> and would choose to do something less of a chore, something like housework, because it was just painful to read. In an effort to keep myself entertained through the read, I did set myself on the task of trying to find out why this book is so popular. And as I got to the final chapter, I really was no closer to the answer. And I did have a couple of questions for Bree about her selection mm. here, which she's already sort of discussed in part, but I wanted to know, Brie, when you last read this book. I would have only read it the once back in the 90s. So that makes a lot more sense to me because Mm. the next question was going to be, how did you think this would be received by the rest of us? Oh, I expected you to all hate it. But I expected you all to hate (laughs) Anne Evergreen Gables as well. So you harboured... It's an exercise in sadism. (laughs) (laughs) I don't remember it being quite so gratingly moral. I just... I hate that. You know what I'm like. Yeah. Like this. I don't remember it being quite so oh, in your face. So, is that the benefit of youth? I don't know. Yeah, that's really why I wondered that because as I was reading this, I just didn't think that it would be something you would have enjoyed recently and that turns out to be the case. Mm. So, that's fair enough. Pat, on the comparisons to Anne of Green Gables, I don't think that was quite so heavy-handed, but I do agree that through the middle part there, it was episodic in the way that it developed Anne's character. The book preached with the subtlety of a manic street corner preacher, in my opinion, and somehow it managed to be even more pious. It was particularly in the first half of the book that it was like that, but it was a theme that kept coming predictably back through each lesson that we were taught with a very heavy hand. Before the culmination of each of those lessons, there would sort of be the chorus of the girls too, going through one by one, and it felt a very predictable sort of formula where each would reflect on her learning. You know, first Meg, then Joe, then Beth, then Amy going through. And I just wanted to yell at the book, like, just get one person to summarise what you're talking about. You don't all need to chip in. This is moving so slowly yep. already. Just one of you tell me what I meant to think and then I'll move on to the next yeah, freaking Yeah, it wasn't helping. And from what I've read, she did write this very quickly although it took a while for her to get it to the publisher and I think she didn't start writing it for quite some time. It must have also taken a while for the three shipments of ink to arrive. (laughs) What I read is that she didn't actually want to write this book. She was writing literature and pulp fiction through the time and 
when she was approached about writing a book for girls, she said she would try, but she wasn't really interested. And she referred to such books as moral pap for the young, which is interesting because that's, to me, exactly what this book is. And perhaps she would have classified it that way herself. God, why did she write moral pap if she had a distaste for it? That's what I'm trying to cover up. Because she was from a poor family. Oh, yeah. They didn't have the money. Like, her dad was a... Apparently, she modelled Mr. March on her father. However, Mr. March was at least trying to earn some money. Her dad apparently just sat around at home. Yeah. So, somebody's got to make of a crust. That's part of the reason why she ended up publishing the book, because the editor of the publishing house had given her dad a book to publish as well once her book was out. So, that put the pressure on her to eventually get it out, and she did. So, this is a quote from historynet.com. Although the novel was moralistic, it did not have the preachy tone common to children's literature of the time. That is so scary. If this didn't have a preachy tone, (laughs) imagine what the rest of the literature was like at the time. And it became and remains a much beloved story. Alcott, however, didn't particularly care for what she'd written, but it accomplished her primary goal in writing it. It made money. And... That's really the motivation, I think, for her to have written it, which comes through in the character of Jo modelled on herself. It's not something to be mocked or looked down upon because from what I understand, she did grow up in real poverty, not the sort of mock poverty that the March family and little women lived through. Money wasn't an evil, but it was a necessity for her and the pursuit of it as an utmost goal of her writing is therefore wholly justifiable. She said, money is the means and the ends of my mercenary existence. Did it achieve the sort of stellar success that it later enjoyed in her lifetime? Was there a point where she was absolutely bathing in bottomless pits of money? (laughs) I don't think she was quite JK Rowling in it. (laughs) (laughs) She did quite well out of her writing, I believe, after this. And the writing, as you've said, Pat, I think is pretty good. A couple of times... Throughout the book, she talked as the author in the first person, which I thought was interesting. I'm not sure whether that's something that was commonly done at the time, and it seemed to be kind of sporadic through the book. Did you guys pick up on that as well? Yeah, that irritated me. But at the same time, I just thought, yeah, it might be the speed at which she had to produce this. Maybe they didn't do the editing like they do now. It's not that they're editing for millions of people around the world consuming this. They're really probably just doing it for a small print run in England and then seeing how it goes. Sorry, America. I'm quite happy with an authorial interjection every now and then, but it certainly could have used an edit. It could have used a pretty hefty edit. (laughs) All of that stuff around all of the poems and the plays and, like, I didn't read it to be quite open. (laughs) I I did, but I resented it as I did. (laughs) (laughs) And I was quite happy to skip through some of it. Yeah, if people aren't familiar with the text, I suppose, the girls would often put on plays or they would write letters to each other, lengthy letters to each other. They would write stories. They had a Dickens fan club-esque type arrangement going on where they would write a newsletter. And the texts from each of these different areas was repeated in full in the book. (laughs) And it blew my mind. It gave me similar thoughts to what I mentioned earlier about that rotating cast, each having their say, because they would write a letter to their their mother and father in a hospital, and each girl would write her own letter, and they would each be included individually in the text. Some of those letters made me laugh, though. Like, some of those I thought were quite good. It was more the plays and crap earlier on. (laughs) (laughs) Well said, Bree. (laughs) I did read them all and it was kind of interesting in a way. I guess maybe it was in their 
in part to give some credence to Joe becoming a published author by the time the book was through. I wondered whether it was to fill in time and pages for Louisa yeah. Alcott. I wrote this old thing a couple of years ago. I'll stick it in Little Women. <laughs> but I did like how it's a creative way. How did they entertain themselves all day? It's not like they work particularly hard, all of them. So how do they entertain themselves when there's only polite society to which they're not always invited and no television? <laughs> they're basically doing a podcast for themselves. <laughs> it is that. It is similar. It's that sort of vein, you know. It's their creative outlet. So I like the idea, but, God, just two pages. We don't need to be subjected to the product of their creative outputs. <laughs> Correct. Yeah, we would never subject anyone to our creative output. <laughs> <laughs> Can I just make a point about the authorial interjections? Yeah. You can interject. Yes. <laughs> I didn't like them. I only remember two of them. The first one was at the end of the paper or the newsletter, and it says in brackets, which I beg leave to assure my readers is a bona fide copy of one written by bona fide girls once upon a time. So she's like spruiking her own daughters at this point. Oh, I liked that one. It might have actually been written by her real daughters, if she had them, maybe. Or herself. Yeah, I wasn't sure how to take that. I was thinking by herself was my interpretation. I concur. Right. And then the second one that I remember was her begging people to give her likes on Facebook so she can release the second book. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, go on, Patrick. I was just going to say that the inclusion of those texts and things reminded me a little bit of Lord of the Rings. And I know that's the thing that rankles people a little bit in that book as well, is the the various songs and whatnot, and they just want to progress with the plot. People get frustrated by those sorts of components in the Lord of the Rings, just wanting the plot to advance, just wanting to get back to the quest. But those intertextual sort of things, albeit fictional intertextual components, they speak to the themes of the book. They talk about, you know, the magic leaving Middle-earth. They talk about the sort of laments of the elves who are fading from the world. And there's some real value there in the way that you read the book as a whole. Whereas here, they just felt superfluous. They felt like nothing. They felt like I was reading a book about little women and suddenly there's a bizarre play or a bizarre uh, game that drama folk might play in inventing overlong stories just didn't add anything to the text. It didn't add any meaning. It didn't speak to the themes. It just felt jarring and out of place. I would have preferred to listen to Tom Bombadil's song on repeat for a year. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, you've just scuttled my entire argument because I don't know that Tom Bombadil's songs added a great deal. But (laughs) No, you know know what? Just as a sidetrack into Tolkien there, I hated that Tom Bombadil song when I was a child. But when I reread it as an adult, I actually really liked it. So it got turned around. You started grooving to the Bombadil. I don't know what you're talking about. Oh, he was a funny fellow with yellow boots that lived in a forest that may or may not have been the most powerful god of existence or something. Yeah, that's a fair summary. You may need to read it, Bree. Oh, God, is that the Lord of the Rings? Yes. yes. Oh. But it's quite short. <laughs> it is not. <laughs> It'll feel quite short in comparison to this. Well, somebody put it on the list. I'll just switch us back to the authorial interjections because there was one that really annoyed me. It was, and I'll I'll quote it here, I don't think I have any words in which to tell the meeting of the mother and daughters. Such hours are beautiful to live, but very hard to describe. So I will leave it to the imagination of my readers. What a cop-out. Yeah. (laughs) I can't write how good this is, so I'll just let you imagine it. 
True. That was weak. Still, a bit of self-editing at that point wasn't unappreciated. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. She could have done that for the rest of the book. <laughs> Look, I've run out of paper here, so I'll just tell you how the rest of the story was going to go. <laughs> if she'd said, uh, you know what, actually, I'll give it a crack, and then gone on for 10 pages, we would have been complaining more heartily. We would have. I would have. I'm not a woman of any magnitude, so perhaps my reading this book was destined to be an exercise in futility. And Bree, I think, accepts that. You say you're not a woman of any magnitude. Do you mean you're a, <laughs> you're a diminutive slight. woman, a small, a slight, uh, a I, slight woman? I mean, I'm not a slight woman. I'm not a large woman. I'm not, you know, magnitude being the measurement of size. You're more a conceptual sort of woman without a physical. <laughs> <laughs> That's not how I intended it, but. <laughs> You're welcome to interpret it how you like. <laughs> we welcome all types, Keith. So. Thank you. It would take too many words, so we'll leave it to the imagination of our listeners. <laughs> yeah, perhaps it has given me the insight required to identify just who might be best served by reading this book. From an age perspective, I'm now thoroughly convinced that this book is perfectly appropriate for people of no age. <laughs> so, if you're dead or not yet born, by all means, give this book a crack. For everyone else, please don't waste your time. That's my thoughts on the book. Oh, dear. <laughs> Laurie, what did you think? I'm a bit worried our criticisms are going to be embodied by our reviews. <laughs> but I'm going to give it a crack anyway. I just felt assailed the whole time by the naked and overwhelming Christian morality. I feel like it might have been one of those three books that very, very strictly religious parents allow their children to read, along with the Bible and the censored edition of the Common Sense Cookery book. And C.S. Lewis. Yes. (laughs) At this point, I'll disclose the number one book on that uh, Harris poll from 2014, Mm. being the Bible. Uh Uh-huh. Continue. Uh Now, morality in general is fine. Even thick religious morality can be slipped into a nice story and be enjoyed if there's meat in a tale, and maybe some C.S. Lewis might count there, maybe. We might visit that one day if you work up the courage, boys. (laughs) Or perhaps some talking animals, but this was just a bludgeon. I didn't mind the writing itself. I thought Alcott's prose was quite fine, good even at times. I enjoyed some of the quirks of the sisters and really loved Joe and some of the supporting characters, and there were some really warm moments. But the story was just ethereal at best, and the matter was mostly moral sledgehammers that I can't imagine them doing any reader of our generation or the younger generation or even the slightly older generation, doing them any good at all. Like, I don't think they would really click with the modern audience. I feel the book is too archaic, and that only sentimental remembrance has kept it going as strong as it has. And if it was ever deserving of the term classic, then that time is gone. And it serves now only to act as a time capsule, but not one that provides significant literary enjoyment. It certainly didn't for me. I'm sorry, Bree. It just wasn't my thing at all. (laughs) That's okay, because as I read it, I totally expected that. (laughs) Oh, I do have one small revelation, though, which actually clears up something that I thought was fact for a very long time. Just before this recording, I was speaking to my parents and I said to my mother, thank you very much for naming me after a character in such a horrid book. (laughs) And she said, what are you talking about? I said, Laurie from Little Women. She said, 
I didn't name you after Laurie from Little Women. And my world was blown apart. Did you actually think that was the case? Yes. I oh. thought she told me that at one stage, but obviously it's just the dust of time. The romantic notions of you. <laughs> and she said, in fact, I don't think I enjoyed Little Women very much at all. <laughs> and there's one part of the story that I've declined to mention because I feel like I might be getting a reputation. There was a bit of animal abuse in the story. And I won't talk about it. <laughs> but my mother said, I don't like the fact she let the canary die. And I'm like, me too! <laughs> <laughs> That was Beth, wasn't it? Supposedly the most caring of the lot. No, it's one point where the mother gets the shits with their antics and just says, you know what, I'm going <laughs> on a holiday. Get the shit with their but antics. it's not the mother's <laughs> fault that the canary dies. It was Beth's responsibility. No, no, no. Mother yeah. says, that's it, girls, I've had enough. I'm going on holiday. You do all the work and see how you like it. Peace. They just didn't do anything. They stood around. But for how long was that period? It was a weekend. Yeah. Surely the bird is not dying over a weekend. It, it was a whole week while the mother was still there, just chilling. And then she said, actually, I'm out. I'm out for the weekend. I'm not even just going to chill and hang with you fools. I'm, <laughs> I'm leaving. Right. I've had enough of your rotten breakfasts. To teach them another moral lesson, she decides to be a hands-off mother for a good period. And all sorts of things go wrong. They burn the cooking. Uh, I don't know. The fire almost goes out or does go out. The canary dies. And the canary dies. Come on, Mum. If you're going to teach them a lesson, at least remind them to feed their canary. That's a pretty harsh lesson. Anyway, Mum said, I didn't like the part where the canary died. What about the baby dying? Yeah, well. Please, you cannot blame the mother for that. Those children have to take some responsibility. It's not like they're five-year-olds. Right, but come on. You could at least give them a heads up when the canary is looking a bit unsteady on the perch or something. <laughs> Seriously, you expect your mother to hold your hand. What, and stop the pet from dying? <laughs> I mean... At least she could scold them. Yeah, if she knows that they're not responsible enough to look after themselves, then surely she must know as well that the pet is in mortal danger if she leaves no it to their hands. way. I think that is absolutely ridiculous. Those girls are old enough to keep house by themselves. They are old enough to have a little bit of responsibility in caring for a pet. Maybe by the end of the book. All right, I'll tell my mother you disagreed on the canary front. <laughs> I think it's horrendous that they did that, but I just think that it's not through the fault of the mother. When I was discussing it with Laurie, I thought maybe that the death of one literary bird may have saved the lives of dozens of real ones. <laughs> For the greater good. To be fair, though, the oldest was about 17 years old. Exactly. At which age you probably should be well enough equipped to look after a bird. Even Joe is like 15, 16 by the end, please. Hmm. Anyway, did you find out for what you were named, Laurie? <laughs> or for whom, I should say? Oh, it went from bad to worse. Well, it started <laughs> off good because I was glad. And then I said, uh, so who was I named after? And she said, mm, let me think. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, really? She said, I think I just like the name. And I was satisfied with that. And she started telling me the same story where the doctor was having a fight with her because he wanted to write down Lawrence instead of Laurie on the birth certificate because when I was Prime Minister of Australia, <laughs> I most certainly wouldn't want to be known as Sir Laurie or whatever. Anyway, Mum argued and she won, obviously. But then she started to say, the only other Laurie I can think of around the time, wasn't there like a football or something? I'm like, Laurie Daly? <laughs> She's like, no, not Laurie Daly. I'm like, not Laurie Lawrence. Oh, anyway, okay. I think she just liked the name. So I'm certainly not named after cat-killing Laurie from Little Women. What did you think of Laurie? I did like him. 
I thought he was fine. I really liked the fact that he treated them as the kids next door and just had fun with them. There wasn't any of that gender stuff happening between them. Or the class type stuff because he was extraordinarily rich. Yeah, he certainly wasn't above their level too high and helped them out as much as he could. I thought he was great too, but I will say that the prank that he played on Meg, Mm. writing to her pretending to be the man that she had her eye upon, was... Beyond the pale, that was cruel. It was really awful. I thought it might have been because it was misguided affection of his own. Mm. But Mm. it didn't play out like that. I don't know. He seemed to have his eye on Joe throughout, in my estimation. Ah, well, some news on that front, if you want to have some spoilers. I will spoil it. All right. I've read the synopsis of the latter one. Okay, yeah. Well, spoil it for me, who hasn't. Meg ends up marrying Laurie's tutor. He proposes marriage towards the end of the book and... She managed to figure out that she is in love with him and they agree to wait for three years until she's 20. Wasn't that a whole lot of waffle? (laughs) (laughs) Thanks to Auntie March. I quite like that. That was actually Meg standing up for herself for the only time because the rest of the book I found her such a sap. Putting on airs and thinking she's above everyone and just concerned about whether or not she's wearing the right silk. Oh, God, what a sap. But Hang on. She didn't quite have the ruler up the spine type thing. She said in the same area of the book that she wasn't going to fall head over heels and act improperly. And then 10 minutes later, she had a tongue down her throat. Yes. (laughs) So she marries the tutor and they have twins. How old was he, by the way? 45. Uh, I don't know. It probably becomes clearer in volume two. He's got to be well into his 20s. It was implied that there was quite an age difference there. Mm. Didn't spell it out. I had envisioned him as being quite old early on. Seemed like he'd missed his chance at happiness. Mm. I actually thought that when he took the girl's mother off to visit the injured father and he was acting such a gentleman that they might come back, the father might perish and they might hook up. But no. (laughs) (laughs) In Volume 1, you've got Amy who is sent off when Beth gets scarlet fever because Amy's never had the scarlet fever. So Amy gets sent off to live with their one rich aunt at the stately manor of Plumfield or whatever it's called. And she ends up in Volume 2 becoming quite a companion, replacing Joe basically. She ends up travelling to Europe, which Joe always thought was going to be her ticket out of there sort of thing. Joe ends up writing and becoming an author and she moves away and on one of her returns home to look after Beth, who has become very, very sick from the after effects of Scarlet Fever, Laurie proposes marriage to her and she turns him down because she just sees him as a brother. You go, girl. And so she returns back to where she's been writing and she's met a German professor who is lovely and warm and like a big cuddly bear and they end up falling in love and getting married and having kids Laurie goes for her younger sister instead. (laughs) The dog. He does. He bumps into Amy randomly in Europe and they end up getting married. Beth dies. Oh, dear. So all the good stuff happens in volume two. Yeah. Mm. (laughs) It sort of seems like she's intentionally doing exactly what the sort of people who would read this book wouldn't want. And maybe that's why it's so popular because it's the kind of thing that you don't think you want. But when it happens, you're like, well, actually, it's a bit enjoyable when it's not quite as predictable as you think it will be. Maybe. I definitely wanted Joe and Laurie to end up together and I'm not happy that he ended up with his sister. But maybe the sister changes. She gets older. I desperately didn't want them to do that, though. Yeah, I was very happy with the platonic relationship. I'm with you there, Bree. I think that's a really nice characterisation that back in the 1860s, those girls probably could have married up, but 
ultimately that is their statement to themselves that they don't, that Meg marries the person that she loves. And it's stated all along that she's the beauty and that she could marry anyone she wants to improve the status of her family and yet she stays true to herself and loves him and they live very happily in volume two and book three, four, five. (laughs) (laughs) And even Amy stays true to herself. She tells Laurie where to go and to get his act together and make himself worthy of her because she has become an artist and she derives great pleasure from it and she's really, really good. Ultimately, I really liked that Joe loved him as a brother and turned him down. Mm. Plus, he was a bit of a risk. In what way? Gallivanting around at night as Batman. What are you talking about? He was hanging out in some billiard halls at one point. Oh, yes, that's right. (laughs) Sketchy locales. But that's basically what Amy is saying. If you want to be worthy of me and of marrying into my family, then it's not enough just to have money. You've actually got to make yourself a better person as well. I'm not just going to marry you for your money. That's not who I am. That's not who we are. No, I don't want no scrub. (laughs) (laughs) So it sounds like Amy did do quite a bit of growing up at some point. Yeah, and look, she's still a little pretentious, but I remember reading volume two maybe a few times because that is when all of the interesting stuff happens. And Joe marries Professor Bear, his name is Teddy. Is it Teddy? No, she calls her kid Teddy. Teddy is Laurie's name. Yeah. And so she marries this professor and he is wonderful and warm and they have two boys and Miss March, the aunt, ends up leaving her huge home to them and they run a boys' school and teach and she writes novels. Did the last book of the series get transformed into a TV series, The Golden Girls? What I'm saying is that I am sad that I'm not scoring volume two because I like volume two. It moves quickly. I only wish you had read this volume more recently because you would have spared us from the suffering. I know, I (laughs) apologise. I would have told you all just to start it. Chapter 24. We haven't actually heard what you think of Volume 1, I don't think, yet, have we? Well, I think I've probably given it a pretty good go. I do wonder whether we are reading, well, Anne of Green Gables as well as this one, purely through the eyes of 21st century, mostly progressives. I'm very conservative, thank you very much. (laughs) Thank you not to call me a progressive. (laughs) Because there must be something in there about feminism somewhere, because it's one of the first books that is written for teenage girls, and it was a genre that never existed. So kudos to Louisa May Alcott for that. And I do quite like how they are striving to to be a better version of themselves, not necessarily to change who they are, to stay true to themselves still, but also to recognise that, you know, you can't always be quite so fiery in every situation. And that's something that I personally struggle with. That's one of the things that I found a little bit upsetting, though, is she was almost taking the fire out of these young girls, pushing them to humility and to find their true value in marrying and that sort of thing. I don't think that that was ever really her intention, to find their true value in marrying. I think it's finding their true value in themselves. Overcoming their foibles. So that they are comfortable with that. So, yeah, they don't have to settle for just the first person that comes along and waves money in their faces. Yeah. And Joe ends up not marrying until she's 25. Old maid. Back then, yes, absolutely. You know, they were... 17, 18, and it wouldn't have been shocking if Meg had married Mr. Brooks straight away. It just strikes me that even though the idea of who they might marry was relatively progressive in that you should marry for love, the idea that they needed to be married was never really 
in question and the mother said something along the lines of to be married to a man is the highest honour a woman can hope to achieve or something along those lines. It rankled me a bit. I agree with you because I'm looking at it from 21st century eyes. Yeah, I like my 21st century eyes and I refuse (laughs) to put myself in anyone else's shoes. (laughs) And look, I would have hated it as well. I'm sure I would have, but I can see what she's trying to do. I can see how she's trying to bring up these women in her family without her husband there. And that is also the bit that drove me the most nuts, that this ongoing morality, were all good, in inverted commas, families, this kind of try-hard at being pure? Like it really – and it's always this threat of father will be displeased if we don't read our little books and carry our little bundles, and that annoyed me. And I wondered whether this was truly a snapshot of family life in the 1800s or is this just like you were all saying – shoving God down their throats and saying that you have to marry, basically. That ongoing metaphor of them being pilgrims along a path to righteousness, carrying their little bundles, was grating, to say the least. Yeah, it was. I have that quote for you. It's, I want my daughters to be beautiful, accomplished and good, to be admired, loved and respected, to have a happy youth, to be well and wisely married, and to lead useful, pleasant lives with as little care and sorrow to try them as God sees fit to send. To be loved and chosen by a good man is the best and sweetest thing which can happen to a woman. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I I can't disagree with the bulk of that. I think a lot of that is relatively sweet sentiment from a mother, but it comes to a halt in a screeching car crash (laughs) sort of fashion there to my 21st century readers' sensibilities. And I wouldn't be necessarily so upset by it if I felt that this was in character because that's something that upsets me is when people go see a James Bond movie and they're like, oh, I hated that villain. He wanted to kill people. That's wrong. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think you really get the point. But this was trying to proselytise. It was trying to be preachy. It was trying to send a message. And it's upsetting when the message is so asinine. And do you know what upset me the most was when I read afterwards that this is where they have traced back that image of the all-American girl to this ridiculous moralising, trying to placate everyone, trying to be the perfect little princess for father. Goddamn Meg and her Daisy Dukes. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) That's exactly right. So I was intensely disappointed, but I do remember enjoying volume two. And I also really enjoyed, or I enjoy my memories of the movie. But God, like Beth, like I just really intensely dislike her for being so freaking good. Like, ah, like. Have something. Have something in your personality. Um, Amy, pretentious, arrogant princess. Joe, feisty and awesome, of course. Meg, homebody, dull. Joe also has her own evils, and I'm not talking here of her temper. When she cuts her own hair off, she really harps on about how it was her one true beauty. So she has the same vanities mm. that her sisters suffer from. That's true. It's a good point. Which I don't think is a bad thing. I think it lends some strength to her character and the depth of her character. They're all flawed, which is to be expected. Ultimately, I don't think I hated it as much as you guys. Like, I will definitely not score it as a measly little one, like I'm sure Laurie will. I still really liked that bond between the sisters. They really do 
have each other's backs. And that also goes for Laurie. He's got their backs. There's a time in the book when Meg is really being a pretentious little show off and he doesn't dob on her. I just think that bond between all five of them is really positive and it's something that I have with my sister. And that's one of the best things about volume one is that it sets up that relationship. That's well said, Brie, because one of the only highlights that I made that was positive in nature was about the dynamic between the sisters, which was very occasionally enjoyable. (laughs) Shall we move on to the movie? Before we do that, I'm going to quote the final lines of part one. Oh, yes, please. Send more likes. (laughs) So the curtain falls upon Meg, Joe, Beth and Amy. Whether it ever rises again depends upon the reception given the first act of the domestic drama called Little Women. That curtain ain't rising. (laughs) (laughs) No, thank you, Si. Who watched the movie? (laughs) I desperately wanted to because of the all-star cast, at least a little bit of it, just to see what they looked like in their younger days, but I didn't get a chance, unfortunately. And Bree, you watched it back in the day? Back in the day, yes. I will very quickly, for anyone that is a massive fan of the movie, maybe they'll appreciate these points. Things that I liked. Seeing Winona Ryder, after watching Stranger Things and being depressed about how artfully old and haggard she appeared, so I liked seeing her young and not crazy. She was not crazy. She was great in that, though. Everybody watched Stranger Things. She was frantic. Actually, yes, you're right. She wasn't crazy. Everything she was seeing was real. However, she was very manic testament to what a good actor she was but it was depressing to see i think she was one good haircut or even just a comb off looking quite reasonable as well (laughs) (laughs) yeah definitely (laughs) i appreciated the fleeting appearances of a nice cat followed by some kittens (laughs) (laughs) the animal quotient again (laughs) i certainly enjoyed the relative brevity but it was less than two hours and that was certainly shorter than the book was I loved one scene where a random red-headed boy chasing after Joe to try and secure a dance while there's a red-headed girl looking towards the boy and she's eagerly expecting that he is bound for her and being brutally disappointed as he swept past. What else? Oh, yes, the slight reduction in the self-flagellation. Laurie being the Batman. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yes, and Winona sporting a dashing beard at one point. That was quite good. Things that I didn't like. Kirsten Dunst not turning into a vampire and lacerating their throats one by one (laughs) as lightning crashed bright light and deep shadows across their rooms. (laughs) The Batman never suiting up, simply playing the Bachelor Playboy the whole movie. (laughs) And the gross spit bridge formed between the parting lips of Laurie and Joe. (laughs) That was about it. Do you have any comments, Brie, back from your remembrance of the movie? You can't go wrong. You've got Susan Sarandon. She can't do anything wrong. One thing that you might not be recalling, Brie, because of the time that has passed, is they actually make a lot more effort to be progressive Mm. on the feminist front. The mother talks about how her girls won't wear ridiculous corsets. When she first meets the tutor from next door, she lets him have a bit of stick about how her girls will act the way they like, not the way they should, or something like that. That's an interpretation of the text so that it's brought into the modern day to sell to audiences. It does make you wonder if any of us were experts in 1800s literature, whether this is something that is quite unusual and quite progressive for its time. Do we think that this is something that should be kept away from children now? Do you think it's sending the wrong message? Is it sexist? Absolutely, it's sexist. 
But can children still read books like this, knowing something about the time in which they were written and be able to separate that out? I think they can. It's a bit like studying history. Knowing everything that you know about the book, plot, morals, sexism, all of it together, would you recommend it to your daughter to read when she's, say, 10? I don't know. Any more or less than any other literature? Well, just in general. I mean, there's millions of books to be read. Would you say, hey, you should read Little Women? Probably, because, I mean, there's things in heaps of those books that are horrendous. Dickens, which Pat mentioned before, talks about child slavery. So there is child slavery in the world today still. There is plenty of sexism in the world. There are plenty of people who still think that women should be in the kitchen. Yeah. That goes to what I was saying earlier, where I feel like Little Women is moralistic. It's pushy, whereas Dickens doesn't really espouse child slavery, per se. It is an interesting distinction. I still think that it needs to be read in the context of the era. Yeah. 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 I, I, didn't, I think if you were studying it, then that would be a discussion point. But if I was just reading for pleasure, I couldn't recommend this to anyone. (laughs) It's interesting, though, because there's a strong contingent of people who like this book who see it as a a message of empowerment to women. And Mm. there is certainly elements of that with Jo in particular. And even some of the messages from the mum to her daughters. We did a little bit of a quote earlier on. But if you continue with that, she does go on to say it's down to their choice and it should never be a case of marrying for money or anything like that. So there is a, a bit of mixed messages. Mm, I agree with that part of it, Keith, though. But one of the criticisms that I saw online, and you might have your own opinions about this, is that when things really got tough, it was the men that stepped in the book and saved the day, and that, that shitted me off. <laughs> it doesn't remain that way. So then this is the thing, like I know what happens, so I know how I'm reading it. Yes, volume one, the way they ended with Mr. March returning home triumphantly and they're all sitting around listening to him talk about how well they've done to overcome their little bundles. Although he didn't say much about Amy, so I feel (laughs) like she's still a selfish little princess. That was their triumph, not his. Yeah, exactly. But should it be their triumph? Learning to control it, but perhaps still needing to have that fire in them. And the fact that he's the one sitting there saying how well they've done and they're all sitting there adoringly listening to him. And little Amy, Amy, yeah. you, Amy. Amy, you yes. Look nice. <laughs> <laughs> he was effectively absent throughout the whole thing, even at the point where he returns. He was just used to drive the plot. Even at that point, he was used to identify how much they've changed in the time from the beginning to the end because he's been absent for that period. Hmm. I don't know why I'd sound like I'm defending this book because I really, really hated it. (laughs) (sighs) Are we there? It's time for Scoring with Keith. Was Little Women, Amy, dull, predictable and unnecessarily long-winded? Was it Beth, (laughs) dull, predictable and incurable? (laughs) Uh, Okay, so was it Amy, one point? Was it Beth? Two points. Occasionally charming, but mostly just taking up space. Was it three, Meg, pretty to look at on occasion? Was it four, Joe, driven, determined and versatile, with a heart that's mostly in the right place? Or was it five, the almighty mommy, she who can do no wrong? (laughs) Who wants to go first? I'll go first. I was tossing up giving it a two for the late turnaround, but the first 75% was frankly unforgivable. So it's a one. (laughs) It was a painful slog for me. It was really unenjoyable. 
it's definitely a one. I'll echo that sentiment. It's definitely the worst book that I've read on this Seeking Tumnus journey. It's a one. Yes! <laughs> Brog is vindicated. Keith never hated Brog. Yeah, that's right. I preferred Brog by a long margin to Redwall. But Redwall wasn't my least favourite at this point. But certainly now, by a long way, Little Women is. I thought I would have had all of you hating Anne of Green Gables the most, but it turns out it's Little Women. So anyway, I give it three because I still think that that bond between sisters and also I can't help but remember volume two. There is hope. Hmm. Well, alas, we probably aren't going to see that hope, that shining star on the horizon, unfortunately. (laughs) Certainly not here. Maybe go and watch the movie at least. I know we've gone on way too long, but the thing about Anne of Green Gables is she had real charm and personality, really distinct and lovable, whereas these girls, Joe probably came the closest, but the others were just, I don't know, shades of grey. <laughs> agree. Before we wrap up, can I just say hello and thank you to Emmett on Twitter, Emmett OC underscore, who recommended Seeking Tumness, on hopscotchfriday.tumblr.com. Thank you for chatting and stuff. And also Michael J. Ritchie, who uh, fell from fiction on Twitter, who recommended Seeking Tumness and Overdue podcast. Woo! Thanks, Larry. No worries. And thank you, listeners. Next episode, we're reading something written in the last few thousand years. And it's not <laughs> fantasy. It is, however, science fiction. Oh, yes! <laughs> Keith has, with much kindness in his heart, picked what we hope is a real stonker. Divergent by Veronica Roth. Until next episode, if you're seeking moral guidance, piff the King James, pick up a copy of Little Women, and keep reading. (laughs) The newest testament. And it really, uh, and I really should really come up with something other than really. Really? What did you think of Laurie? I did like him.